Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning, wherever you may be. These are certainly strange and different times we're living in at the moment, but that surely doesn't take our ability to dive into God's Word. And what we are going to talk about today is surely something that collectively, as a human race, can be felt all throughout the globe, whether there is a pandemic or not. And that is the topic of trouble or suffering. How can a good, righteous God permit the manifestation of evil here on earth? God is all good. God is all powerful. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. And terrible, terrible things happen. How can God be good and loving and righteous and merciful? But still have so much evil everywhere around us and beyond us. That is what Bible scholars call theodicy. An attempt to understand why does God allow evil to exist in the world. And evil exists all around us. You know that. That is a fact. And it manifests itself, itself in many forms. One of the ways in which evil manifests itself is in nature. And we see that all the time. Natural evil. This can be tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, cancer cells, epidemics wildfires, lightnings, avalanches, floods, volcano eruptions, and many more. These disasters cause an immense amount of damage and loss of life. This is a very dangerous world we live in. Another way in which we can see evil in this world is in us, moral evil. We can find a few examples of this evil in our judgment towards others, in strained relationships within the family, within marriage, within siblings, within our parents. Moral evil is the cause for murders, mass shootings, terrorist attacks, cyber attacks we now have to worry about, political instability and economic uncertainty everywhere in the world. Wicked moral evil, spiritual evil, selfish desires that when conceived give birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. James 1.15 A third way in which evil manifests itself is through supernatural evil through demonic beings or evil spirits. We can see examples of this all throughout the Bible. The psalmist reveals that in sacrificing their children to idols, the people of Israel were sacrificing their children to demons. Psalm 106, verses 36 through 38 says, They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Another example of this is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 27, where we see sentences such as, A spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it sees him, he throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. It convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. It, cast, it, it, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. You mute and deaf spirit. And one last one. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out and the boy was like a corpse. And what does Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So that's a third way evil exists, supernatural evil. There is a fourth way in which evil manifests itself, and it is maybe the scariest evil to think about, 
And that is eternal evil. Hell. You know, one of the explanations for evil is that God may have allowed the existence of evil so that he could destroy it and thus make his righteous and glory known. And, and that may be true to a certain point, but not entirely since eternal evil will exist in eternal hell. So serious and scary. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 18. 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or, or two feet to be thrown in, into the eternal fire. Eternal evil. So we have natural evil, moral evil, supernatural evil, and eternal evil. All of them everywhere around us, below us, and in us. And, and let's just think about that for a minute. As, and, let, and, and, and let's just think about that for a minute. As Christians, it is such a very tough reality to wrap our minds around. It is so difficult to grasp the idea that if, well, since... God is sovereign, meaning He is in control of everything. There is no one else who could have allowed the existence of evil but Him. Listen to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 to 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 37 through 38 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? We also have Proverbs chapter 16 verse 4 which says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. And we have many more verses, verse after verse after verse, where we can see that God surely is not shy about taking responsibility, about making it known. He is in control of everything. So, while working on this subject, I began to think about something. And that is that there are only two types of people who experience evil and suffering in this world. Those whose name is written in the book of life, and those whose name is not. And, and so the topic of evil and, and suffering is so deep and so wide that to talk about it in only one Sunday, to really cover everything in depth, would, would be impossible. So for now, uh, I just made an introduction of the subject of evil and suffering. I want our main focus to be on the suffering that is experienced by the believer. That by the believers, us, the church. We will be touching on some of the questions and ideas from before, but again, the main idea will be in when believers experience suffering. Questions like, why is this happening to me, or to my family, or to someone I know? What should we do, and how should we respond amidst our suffering? How do we explain it? How do we understand it? These are questions that for ages, we as Christians have had and continue to have a difficult time with. You know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't take very long in, in our lives to realize and experience firsthand that things are not, are not the way they are supposed to be. That we live in this constant tension until the day of glorification, of resurrection. That the way we live life is not what it was intended to be. 
And often we're left asking the very, and often we're left asking the very question that parents who face the loss of a child, spouses who've endured the pain of divorce, church members who've suffered in any numbers of ways, or anyone really who's experienced any sort of pain, is left asking the question, why? So where our main, main text is going to come from is from the book of Job. In this book, we, we find that God gave humanity one of the most sharpest, most potent responses to this weighty question. Why? Though, funny enough, he never answers it directly, and as we go through it, I think we'll find out why. In this book, we encounter almost the most horrific and intense suffering and evil anyone could have or can ever experience. The book of Job almost looks like a play, a, a drama. It has scenes, acts, there are extended monologues and dialogues. We have lead characters and people playing other roles. We have conflict and we have our first scene, more or less after a brief introduction of who Job is, beginning a fantastical place, heaven, where we actually get some sort of knowledge of the inner residency and dynamics of God in heaven. The book of Job can be separated in many different sections. How we're going to go through it will be with the first section, be chapters 1 through 2, where we get our introduction to suffering. The second section, chapters 3 through 31, will be the discussion of the suffering. The third section, chapters 32 through 41, is going to be the correction of suffering. And the fourth section, chapter 42, is going to be where we see the submission under suffering and the restoration from suffering. Now, we are going to go over one of these sections, and before we actually do, I, I want to begin with how I'm going to more or less end. And that is with me planting in your minds some ideas or thoughts as to why this book was written. And there are many, many other ideas and thoughts to, to why it was written. But the first thought is this. God being supreme or the most important thing or the most important in our hearts over everything else is the most important thing to Him. Everything else is carried out for the sole purpose of achieving that. The second idea is, the second idea or thought is, God is looking to maximize, magnify, increase and intensify His worth and glory. And the agent he uses is in this indestructible joy, indestructible faithfulness of his people in him. Even when they lose everything here on earth, even during a great time of trouble. So let's see how the book of Job shows us the purpose of evil and suffering and, and trouble. And we're going to go to the first section, chapters 1 and 2, the introduction to suffering. We encounter, here we encounter that Job is a very wealthy man living in the land of Uz with his extensive family and large wealth, including his, his sizable flock. The Bible tells us that, that he is blameless and an upright man, always careful to avoid doing evil. One day, Satan, the accuser and prosecutor, appears before God in heaven. Where have he come from, God asks, and he responds by saying, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. This was essentially Satan telling God, Oh, you know, I, I have been going up and down looking at all that is mine, looking at my kingdom earth. 
making sure they are all following me, making sure I have them all in my hand. We know from Scripture, especially in John, where Satan is called the ruler of this world. So Satan is really just bragging to God about his dominion over everything and everyone. God then tells Satan, how do you consider my servant Job? There is none like him. There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Sure, I consider Job, Satan tells God. He is only good because you have given him everything. He has health, wealth, and happiness. Of course he's going to follow you. Who wouldn't? Then Satan challenges God. That if given permission to punish the man, Job will turn and curse God. And so it begins. God grants power to Satan to cause Job pain, suffering, and calamity. In the course of one day, Job receives four messages, each message a separate one. News that his livestock, servant, and ten children have all died due to moral evil invaders or natural catastrophes. Job tears his clothes and shaves his head in mourning, but he still but he still blesses God in his prayers. Satan then appears back in heaven and God grants him another chance to test Job. This time, Job is afflicted with horrible skin sores. His wife encourages him to curse God and to give up. And that his suffering was just too great. But Job refuses. Though struggling to accept his circumstances as Though struggling to accept his, his circumstances and surely not without some questioning as to why. Here's, here is where we go to our next section, chapters 3 through 31, the discussion of the suffering. We see here that Job's pain is so great and so deep that he curses his birth and life. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor, nor light shine upon it. Further explaining to that to continue on living only continues on his suffering. After this is where we get to meet the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Very close friends with Job, they travel from very far to be with him and to show him sympathy, sympathy and to comfort him. When they arrived, they were so awestruck by Job's agony that they even remained there silent for seven days. So, you know, you think, well, at least Job will have good friends to, to comfort him and, uh, through this time of trial. And as we'll see, that's not quite the case. The arrival of Job's friends and the commencement of the interaction with him marks the beginning of a series of conversations that lead Job into an even greater despair, questioning God more and more. He never curses him, but he questions him more and more. The conversations with the three friends can be broken down into three different cycles. Eliphaz speaks to Job, Job responds to Eliphaz. Bildad speaks to Job, Job responds to Bildad. Zophar speaks to Job, Job responds to Zophar. And this happens three that cycle happens three different times. And actually on the third time, Zophar drops out of this cycle. And the, re the relevance of this is to show that his, his very good friend probably gives up on Job because he accepts he is hopeless and does not want to argue with him any longer. 
In each, in each cycle, Job's friends mistakenly blame his sufferings on his personal sins rather than God testing and growing Job. The three friends' theology was that the reason behind Job's suffering was because he had, he had done or had been living in this atrocious sin he needed to confess. They had instant retribution towards him. You get out of life what you put in it. You reap what you sow. And that is partially true, but not in Job's case. We can see an example of this in the New Testament in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, where it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be, displayed, might be displayed in him. Here the disciples were using the same theological line of thought that Job's three friends used against them. Well, if he is suffering, it must be because something or some sin he committed. And again, that could be true, but there are also other explanations as to why one suffers. One may simply experience suffer, suffering in Jesus' name. And I'm not talking about only physical pain, but emotional pain, spiritual suffering. You can be mocked, you can be ridiculed, laughed at, or ignored at any moment because you stood for Christ. And, and sure, many times standing up for Christ can very well lead to physical pain or even death. Another way we can experience suffering is because God is growing us through the Holy Spirit into the likeness of His Son. Impurities come up to the surface so that they can be eradicated and more times than not, that process will surely be painful. Suffering and prosperity are not distributed in this world in, this world in proportion to the good or evil someone does. And that is why we as Christians, we must be so careful as to apply true theological statements onto others because we could cause more harm than good to them. We could judge incorrectly. So after the interaction with his friends, whom Job calls worthless physicians who whitewash their advice with lies, we come to the point where Job's questioning of God's plans and sovereignty leads us to our next section. Chapters 32 and, and 41, correction in suffering. Here we see a, a fourth friend enter the discussion, Elihu. And unlike the three other friends, Elihu's theology is much more spot on. Though he also sort of falls on the trap that the first three friends did. The young Elihu believes that Job has spent too much energy vindicating himself, sort of exonerating, absolving, or, or justifying himself before God. Himself rather than God. Why are you doing this to me? I am innocent. Elihu explains to Job that God communicates with humans by two ways. One of them being physical pain and the other one being spiritual and or emotional pain. He says that suffering provides the sufferer with an opportunity to realize God's love and forgiveness when they are well again. Understanding that God has ransomed him from an impending death. Ransomed him so that through his suffering, Job may reach eternal life. Elihu, like the three other friends, did also assume that Job must be wicked to be suffering as he is. And he thinks Job's excessive talking is an act of rebellion against God. And after all of this is done, after everyone has spoken, 
then finally God comes in and speaks. And thank goodness, right? God is here. And why we think God stepping in will finally end Job's suffering and affliction. And God does end Job's suffering and affliction, but not, but not before literally mopping the floor with Job. A beat down for the ages. It, it almost seems unfair. As, as if Job didn't have enough, God rebukes Job with good reason. Job never rejects God, but does challenge and accuses God. The Almighty quieted Job decisively when he finally thundered his own perspective on the situation. Though God did not answer Job's question of why directly, he instead overwhelmed Job and his friends with the truth of his majesty and, and sovereignty. The, the only answer God gives Job really is the manifestation of himself. God also literally tells Job to man up. He says, and I quote, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like this? Job 47 through 9. He humbles Job by asking a series of questions that could never be answered by anyone other than Almighty God. For example, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand this. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caught the dawn to know its place? Do you give the horse his might? Do you close, do you clothe his neck with a mane? I mean, God brings up the earth, the stars, the oceans, light, darkness, animals, everything. So as God continues to break down Job by making it known to him how small he is and how little he knows, Job finally concedes, which brings us to our last section, chapter 42. Submission under suffering and restoration from suffering. Job confesses and admits to God's sovereignty in everything. He acknowledges God's unlimited power and admits the limitations of his human knowledge. He, he, he learns humility, maybe like none of us has ever learned, or like, like none of us has ever learned it. Job says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have ordered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. This response pleases God, but he's upset with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for spouting poor, for spouting poor and theological unsound advice. God, tell, God tells Eliphaz, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job, as my servant Job has. Then check this out. God tells Job to intercede on their behalf. Just imagine interceding for someone who has accused you and hurt you and not helped you at, at a time of need. Sound familiar? Because Christ did that for us in Calvary when the, when the, when the human race turned, his back on, turned their back on him. And, and so after Job intercedes for his three friends, God forgives them. 
God then returns Job's health, providing him with twice as much property as before, new children, and an extremely long life. And that is how the book of Job ends. The question to the answer why is never directly dealt with. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow so much suffering? Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why did he create all these strange animals, behemoth and leviathan? Why did he create you? And the answer, the answer upon which everything rests, is for his glory. And only a Christian can answer the question of why like that. Job does not repent for his sins that are causing his calamity, for he has none to repent of them. Job repents of his pride and his midst and his mistrust in the midst of his pain. With all of the questions God asks Job, there is one thought that lingers all throughout those questions. Job, did you forget who I was? My child, had you forgotten who I am? If you know who I am, then you ought to trust me. Through trials and suffering, God is not only, only vindicating his superior worth, he is also cleansing us and purifying us all of all of the impure from all of the impurities we all have. After what happened to Job, he came away with a deeper sense of God's power and splendor, trusting him more through his God-given faith. And the same thing goes for us. One pastor said, Faith is not a power which we possess to create our own future. Faith is a God-given ability to trust the future that God has promised us. Amongst our suffering, what God wants from us is not to question Him with why. But what He wants from us is our trust. Trust in our Redeemer, in our Savior, in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of his suffering, Job cried out for a, mediate, for, a, for a mediator. He puts his faith in a Redeemer, saying, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Through our trust in Christ, he is exalted and glorified. God is exalted and glorified. Remember, God being supreme or the most important in our hearts over everything else. Is the most important thing to him. Everything else is carried out for the sole purpose of achieving that. And let me share with you another beautiful quote that says, Let me have Christ whether I'm sick or well. Let me have Christ whether I'm rich or poor. Let me have Christ whether I'm alive or dead. Let me have Christ for my sins and Christ for my guide and Christ for my power and Christ for my king. I don't care whether I have anything but Christ. And my prayer for us is that we may believe with all of our heart in with all our heart in God's sovereignty and power over everything and that in everything he does right and he does good. Let's pray that God gives us that conviction and that belief. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for allowing us to be able to to meet the way that we are, Lord, even uh, amongst what's going on. Uh, I pray, Father, that you may give us the conviction, that you may give us the belief to trust you, even though sometimes we may not understand 
why certain things are happening in our lives, whether it be with family, whether it be at work, whether it be with friends, Lord, whether it be with our own spiritual afflictions, Father. I pray, Lord, that, that, that you give us the conviction, that you give us the passion, that you bless us with wisdom and faith so that we can continue on becoming more like your son. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.